And I hope you've got a Bible. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 2. We're going to finish up this chapter. We're going to read verses 11 through 25 to start off tonight. And then we will uh, kind of reflect on what we've learned so far. And then we'll dive right in to what we have in store for us tonight. So Exodus 2, verse number 11. uh, We'll read down through verse 25. Now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that way, and when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And when he went out on the second day, behold, two Hebrew men were fighting, and he said to the one who did the wrong, why are you striking your companion? Then he said, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? So Moses feared and said, surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard this matter, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water, and they filled the troughs to to water their father's flock. Then the shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. When they came to rule their father, he said, "'How is it that you have come so soon today?' And he said, an Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds, and he also drew enough water for us and watered the flock. So he said to his daughters, and where where is he? Why is that you have left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. Then Moses was content to live with the man, and he gave Zipporah his daughter to Moses, and she bore him a son. He called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died, Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God acknowledged them. So we're going to dive into this uh, tonight. We've got a lot of really great things, I think, that we're going to pull out of this text. Uh, But so far, we have covered, and and again, this is not meant to be a deep dive, an extensive study of Exodus. We've done that before. We'll do it again. This is meant to be kind of an overview of of the first little bit of Exodus, which is really kind of explaining uh, the the bondage of Israel and how they are freed from that bondage. Um, But we've talked about how this is the beginning of God moving toward redemption. Um, That Genesis gives us creation, it gives us the fall, and then Genesis goes from being so broad and so, you know, universal to being so narrow and focused on one person, right? From Genesis 12 on, the, the story is about one man and his family, that's Abraham and his children. And of course, Abraham would one day become a nation, but in the meanwhile, he becomes a tribe of shepherd, of wanderers, and his grandson Jacob um, has an encounter with God when, when God says, Jacob... You are going to be uh, the father of a nation. Your grandfather trusted me that something big would happen through him, and you are going to be kind of the, 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 the founder, the father of this nation, and your name will be Israel because the nation will be called Israel after you. So Jacob's family wanders around under this promise, still yet not having any land to call their own. Jacob's family ends up in Egypt. They were guests of honor, but then they become slaves. 
400 years later, they're slaves under the rule of the Pharaoh that we have learned about in this chapter. And the picture that we get here in the early parts of Exodus is that in Genesis, the world was created and the world fell into sin and God started over with a family. And then we find in Exodus that the world that God created is still deep in sin. It's still under the bondage of sin. And kind of the picture of that is found as God's people are in slavery to the enemy, um, the, the serpent king, um, if you will, the, the serpent king, the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh who rules the whole world, is specifically bringing oppression on God's chosen people. Of course, the whole world is in bondage to sin, but God is going to use this little snapshot of time and this little corner of the earth to kind of begin to tell the story of redemption and begin to rescue people from sin. So it all begins with the exodus. That's the exit from Egypt. Um, And the exodus begins with the birth of a baby boy named Moses, and we kind of talked last week that this is kind of what, what's going on. Chapter two is kind of a kind of a, a small, a kind of a microcosm of what is going on, big picture throughout the rest of the Bible. Through Moses, Israel would rise out of bondage, and then through Israel, the whole world would find hope. So as Moses is born, hope is born, because Moses is going to be the deliverer that brings Israel out of bondage, and of course, Israel is going to bring light to the whole world, and eventually, a Savior who will save all of the world, not just one nation, but all nations. So we see a spark of hope has come to life um, through the birth of Moses. And tonight, we see Moses take his first step in becoming Israel's deliverer. So as we get into tonight's text and study, I want to draw our attention to the verses that bookended our read. Verse number 11 and verse number 25 particularly. We're going to talk about those for just a little bit. Um, I want to draw our attention to some words that are in these verses. Um, And I don't do this a lot because I know y'all don't want to really get real geeky and down into the words and the, the meanings of words. But I feel like it's helpful sometimes to kind of see how the Holy Spirit works, even in ways that we'll, we'll, we can never begin to truly appreciate but I want to kind of take a little bit of time and, and, and show you something that God showed me over the last couple of, uh, of days as I studied this. Verse number 11, particularly, if you've got a highlighter or a pen or something, uh, I want you to pay attention to uh, the, the Scripture as it says, When Moses was grown, and then it says that he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens. Now, the word grown and the word looked are particularly um, of interest for us. So if you highlight those, uh, and then if you look down at verse 25, um, it's pretty easy to see one of the connections because we see that God looked at his children. So we find Moses looking at his brothers, God looking at his children. So I think there's a connection there, right? Moses looking at the suffering of his his brethren, God looking down at the suffering of his children. So I think we see kind of something that, that, that can be connected there, but also... It says that God acknowledged them. God acknowledged them. And and I know in our English, it may not seem that acknowledge and grown up or grew up um, have too much of a connection. But I think there's something going on here that kind of will help us see kind of uh, uh, how Moses kind of steps into this role of a deliverer for his people. So again, just to kind of recap that, verse number 11, we have Moses growing up and we have him looking on the people. And then in 25, we have God looking and God acknowledging. 
Now, the word behind growing up literally means to become. Um, so it doesn't necessarily mean aging. It just means stepping into a new role, um, if that makes sense. Now, Moses, uh, and here's why I know it doesn't mean necessarily referring to age. Moses is in his 40s at this point. So if he's just now growing up, he, he's got bigger problems. But that's not what he's talking about. Moses had been grown up for a while. This is referring to Moses stepping into a new role, stepping into a new place, arriving at a new uh, beginning, if you will. So as he, as he grows grows up or as he steps into this new place, he begins to see the world in a new way. Now, don't you think there's a connection there? As he steps up to this new place, as he grows up to this new level, he starts seeing differently. So there's a connection between becoming someone new and seeing differently. Right? We often take for granted the way we see the world because as God's people, we have been taught and we have been kind of you know, you know, embedded with the truth uh, and we see the world through the lens of the scripture that has been written on our hearts, right? And the reason why you see the world a certain way is because as a Christian, you have been changed from the inside, right? You have been born again. You have grown up or you have grown into a new person or you have become a new person. And because you're a new person, you see with a new lens, right? So Moses has become someone new, and we don't know, the story doesn't tell us what changed, and we're going to dig deeper and find out what might have changed, and I think you probably know what might have changed, but Moses steps to a new level, and he sees differently. Meanwhile, we have God at a higher level than everybody seeing what Moses had seen, seeing what had been going on for 400 years that Moses just recently realized that God had always known. Yet if you, if you notice, this is the first mention of God seeing or knowing anything at all so far in Exodus. We've read two chapters and God has barely been mentioned. And it's not that he didn't know that they were in suffering before. It's not that he didn't see them get into suffering or get into bondage when, before they ever were. But there's, there's, a, there's a connection here, right? Moses becomes someone new. He sees differently. Then we find that this is the trigger. It's the spark for God to enter the story. So I don't think we should move past that quickly. But the word acknowledge, or in, your, in, in uh, King James, it's respect. Um, New King James is acknowledged. They mean the same. It just means pay someone respect means that you pay attention to them, that you notice them, right? And the, literally the Hebrew word there, it's difficult to translate because it literally just means to know somebody, to know somebody more than just, well, I know they're there, but to know someone in the deep, intimate, personal way. So the text is telling us that God saw them and gave them special attention that they had been lacking, so God always, always knew, right? But he enters the story to show that he cares. Moses had not always known. He was the prince of Egypt. He was living life in luxury. And one day he realized, I'm living a lie. And my people are in suffering while I'm in luxury. I can't live this way. He arrives at this new place and he enters the story to show that he cares. Now, I want to show you something because this is so cool and for people... for. Bible nerds like me, I, I, I might like it a lot more than y'all, but I want to show it to you. In Hebrew, and this is something that you'll never, you, you know, y'all, y'all, you can forget this in five minutes, but in Hebrew, the writers would often use words that rhyme 
that didn't necessarily mean the same thing or have a similar meaning, but they would use words that rhyme. So when you read it in the original text, you would know, whoa, I need to pay attention to that and that because they're connected. And in English, you know, our words don't we don't we don't have this privilege, right? And this is how deeply inspired the text was. The, the Holy Spirit would give the writers this gift that they would use these words that were similar, that if you were reading these in the original Hebrew tongue, you would say, oh no, that word back there rhymes with this word right here, so I need to pay attention to this, because if that sounds like this, there must be a connection between these two verses, between these two ideas. So, in verse number 11, the word grown, or the word become, is the Hebrew word gada, And then in 25, the word acknowledge or respect is the Hebrew word yada. So again, these words don't mean the same thing, but if you're hearing them in Hebrew, you perk up a little bit because, okay, Moses yadas and God yadas. And and you're hearing that and you think, oh, okay, God is trying to tell me something. That Moses becoming someone is connected with God Noticing someone. That Moses becoming this new man is connected with God noticing his people. So I think the Holy Spirit wants us to pay attention to this. And again, you read it in English, you don't have to know all that. But I think it's, it, it's fun and it's helpful to see under the surface sometimes. To, to, to just stand back and say, God, this is so amazing that deeper than we'll ever go, the seeds of inspiration are there. And, and I think the Holy Spirit wants us to notice this because there's a connection here that this section is bookended. Really, verse 11 and verse 25 are kind of a a concise passage that tells the beginning of Moses' stepping in, or the beginning of his role as Israel's deliverer. So God was working behind the scenes to bring Moses to a place where he saw the world like he saw it. You see that? God was working behind the scenes to bring Moses to this place where Moses sees the world the way he sees the world. But in the story, I know what you're thinking. Moses sees the world that way before we're told God sees the world that way, right? Because verse 11 comes before verse 25. That's math, right? Moses sees the people before God saw the people. But of course, we know God had always seen I think the Spirit wants us to know that Moses is going to become the means by which God is introduced to these people. Because they are not worshiping God. They don't even believe in the God of Abraham. They think it's just a myth, a legend. God is never going to be known by Israel unless Moses is in position to reveal him to them. So the key, and this is kind of a big, big picture story, the key for God's people to know him, and meet him is for God's man to be in position. So we see kind of what, 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 where this is going. That, God, that we need a deliverer, we need a Savior to reveal God to us. Now Moses, of course, here is a picture of Jesus, a picture of the Spirit of God that we are saved through. But in this story, Moses, we all know, he is the one that goes to Egypt and not just speaks to Pharaoh, but he goes to the Hebrews and says, hey, I am your deliverer. And I am going to introduce you to the God that we as a people have forgotten. You know what I think we find, what I think this says to us more than anything? regarding Moses' obedience to God, 
our obedience to God moving within us. Because something happened to Moses, right? He became someone new. Something changed between, you know, around 40 years old for Moses. Moses' obedience to God is essential, as is our obedience to God. If he's moving, if God is moving within us, he wants to move through us because ultimately he wants to move for others. So listen, if God is stirring within you, if God is stirring within you even the smallest bit, if He's stirring within you, that means He wants to move through you. And if He wants to move through you, it's because somebody out there, He wants to reach. He wants to move through you for somebody. Or somebody's as it is in this scenario. Now, we're gonna, I'm going to show you a lot of different verses because there's, some few, there's uh, several different texts in the New Testament that looks back to this moment of Moses' life. We're told in the New Testament that in, when Stephen preached that famous sermon about Israel's history, uh, he helps us kind of understand what's going on in Moses' life. Here's what Stephen says. Moses was 40 years old. It came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. So when Moses was 40, Stephen says something happened in him, something changed in him, something triggered a change. It came unto his heart What does that tell us? God moved in Moses' heart. Moses was in a seat of power and privilege, but somehow, and we're not told how, he became aware of his true heritage. Now, Pharaoh didn't one day say, okay, Moses, i got to tell you, you're adopted. That was not, Pharaoh would have never told Moses that, right? Nobody wanted Moses to know that he was not an Egyptian. But somebody bigger than Pharaoh told Moses his true heritage. Now, Stephen also tells us that Moses was very well educated, very well learned in the Egyptian schools and the Egyptian culture. No doubt, he learned about Egyptians, the Egyptian religion, the complex religion, the system of all the gods. Maybe he had access to Egypt's history books. Maybe he had the ears of the wise men. Maybe he learned about other religions of the world. You think? I'm sure that was a, that was a, a realistic uh, uh, thing Moses was exposed. Perhaps he read about and learned about one of the ancient prime ministers who happened to be a foreigner who worshipped a single god that the Egyptians had declared to be no god at all, but the history books told a little bit about that guy and a little bit about his god. Of course, he, Moses must have had access to some of the special reports of the courtroom and the palace of Egypt because what we read, and of course Genesis written by Moses, clearly what Moses would later write for us to read in Genesis, I think he must have read some of that in the Egyptian history books because it's told from an Egyptian perspective. Clearly he had read about this Hebrew prime minister, this Hebrew monotheist, this stranger that believed in one God that went from prisoner to prime minister. I bet Moses read a conversation between Pharaoh and his officials about that very peculiar guy. Here's what Moses would read and would later write for us. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. Now, that's one of the uh, Pharaoh's advisors, Pharaoh's butlers and and, and cupbearers that 
that Joseph helped out. So Joseph was given a major makeover before becoming a public-facing uh, official. His heritage was hidden, but maybe Moses found out about this. Maybe Moses began to learn more about how the Hebrews went from being privileged guests of honor in the land to being the enemies and slaves of Pharaoh. Perhaps Moses began to wonder why he had no father, why his, why his mother always dodged the questions of his heritage, why he looked so differently than his brothers and sisters, why he never was treated like he could really be the next king of Egypt, just the vice president or just the co-leader. Maybe all that caused him to go out to the Nile River one day and look into the reflection of the water. And maybe he realized as he was surrounded by Hebrew slaves, I'm not an Egyptian. I'm a Hebrew. And that prime minister we've heard about so much about that could interpret dreams, he wasn't an Egyptian either. He was a Hebrew as well. And maybe Moses started putting all that together. And this would have caused a stirring in his heart, I believe. Maybe he started thinking about what he heard about Joseph within the Egyptian writings. Remember when Joseph was on trial before Pharaoh and Pharaoh was questioning him if he really could interpret his dreams. Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not in me, but my God will give you the answer to your dreams. And of course, that would have caused a stir in Pharaoh because Pharaoh did not believe in God. He believed in the gods. He believed in one of the gods. But this idea of a single God, that seemed to be a joke. But Joseph did not back down. He began to give Pharaoh some advice. And then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one God has revealed. So the gods of Egypt did not reveal this stuff to you, Pharaoh, but my God, the Hebrew God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, my God has shown you this stuff. And of course, you know the story that would happen. Pharaoh was impressed. The proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom the Spirit of God is in? Can you imagine if Moses would have found that and read that and thought, wow, my ancestor was in my position. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you this, there is none so discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. And no doubt... All this would have been in the age of history books. And maybe when Moses realized he was a Hebrew like Joseph, maybe he turned from the God of the Nile and the gods of the sun and the God of the darkness, and maybe he started praying to the God of Joseph. And this led to a stirring deep within him, and, and, and maybe that's what the text means. Moses grew up. Moses became somebody different. Moses was stirred within his heart, and he began to see the world differently. Another way to translate that word grew up is the word is is the idea that Moses became great. That Moses became great. Now, here's what is puzzling. Moses was already great. He was the prince of Egypt. He was the son of Pharaoh. Here's what Stephen goes on to tell us in his famous sermon. Seeing one of them being wrong, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. And that cost Moses his royalty. 
And of course, as the story goes, Moses has to flee the, the country when he is found out to be a traitor, when he's found out to be a treasonist, when he's found out to be, have, have, have turned against the Egyptian people. And I don't think it's a coincidence that Moses' ascension to greatness coincided with his resignation from power. That the scripture says Moses became great. But as we know, Moses' rise to greatness would have coincided with his resignation, with his fall from power. Moses lost something to gain something. He lost his throne to gain his God. I can't help but see the gospel in that. What obedience to the gospel brings and what it means. I mean, think of all Jesus preached about self-denial his revelation as to what it what it means to be great jesus famously preached a sermon one day when his disciples were arguing over who was greater and how they could be the greatest uh, uh, greater than each other and jesus called them out and he said you know that those who are considered rulers of the gentiles lorded over their their slaves and their uh, the people that are weaker than them lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them he says, I know what y'all think greatness is. It's being great. It's being more powerful. It's being over somebody. But he says, but it shall not be so among you. It shall not be so among you. Because greatness in my kingdom is not defined by any of that. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. So, doesn't Moses go on to embody this? And this is how Stephen interprets and preaches Moses, how we should see him and how we should aspire to be ourselves. Another New Testament preacher tells us this in Hebrews 11. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. So why did Moses step out and do this? He had faith and a new God. By faith, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. So he chose rather to lose if it meant gaining, even if it cost him. And Hebrews says, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Now, of course, Christ would not come for a thousand or so more years. But he considered the reproach of following God's will and plan as greater. I know that's pulling from a lot of texts, but I think together this gives us an ultra-clear picture of Moses' rise to be a deliverer for Israel. As the one through whom the gospel is going to not just deliver, but reveal himself. Moses knew striking the Egyptian would be an act of treason. He knew it would cost him, but he was avenging Israel. It was a way of drawing a line in the sand, also a way of saving one of their lives, pulling the enemy's grip away from God's people. But notice in verse 13, he is not celebrated as a hero. He's resented. When he goes and he says to one of his Hebrew brothers, why are you fighting each other? They say in verse 14, who made you a prince and judge over us? Stephen, again, clues us in on what Moses was thinking. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. 
in preview of the next 40 years, they would never understand completely. This is a preview of what life would be like for Moses as he was dealt, he dealt with the grumbling and the murmuring of Israel for years and even decades. Even God would say to Moses years later, I have seen this people, and behold, they're stubborn. I mean, even if you don't believe the Bible's inspired, right? You'll say amen to that. I mean, we all are stubborn, aren't we? At the heart of our rebellion, at the heart of our rebellion is a resistance to being under God's sovereignty. But there's no better place, there's no more secure place, yet we resist God's rule, don't we? Now this may explain why we don't like being told what to do, right? But it also explains why we try our best to control others, yet we want to remain completely autonomous ourselves. Isn't it true? That we love bossing people around, but we don't want them to boss us around. Why is that? Because we resist being controlled. We resist being ruled. We resist being guided. Yet we love guiding and ruling and controlling. We like commanding, but we rebuke commanders. Of course, in our relationships, there's a balance of who's in charge in different situations and different seasons. But in our spiritual lives, there is only one solution. We must submit to God. As Christians, we must submit to Christ. And remember, as Christians, we live. We does not mean you and me in our separate lives, in separate places. We means the church, right? As Christians, we are placed into Christ's body. We have no salvation apart from His Lordship. We have no life apart from His body. His church in Israel is a forerunner of that model. Moses, obviously a forerunner of Jesus, would face this tension, this headbutting for years for the rest of his life as these people would not want to follow him because ultimately they didn't want to follow God. But we haven't changed, have we? I want to close on one more thing. Moses fears for his life. In verse number 15, notice what it says. Pharaoh heard of this matter. He sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Moses was still a man. He had fear and doubt. But this too was a part of God's plan. To continue to refine Moses and develop Moses and grow Moses. And I want to close around this idea. If we want to be leaders in God's kingdom, we're going to have to be emptied of this world and of ourselves so that God can refill us. And you know how I th why I think that is the clearest picture that we can draw from this verse? Where does Moses end up at? A well. It can't be any clearer. Just like Isaac came to a well, Jacob came to a well, Moses comes to a well, empty and dry, from a place of utmost privilege to a place of exile. He finds himself desperate for something to drink. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, you won't resist sacrifice. You won't gripe when the world presses you and squeezes you and drains you. I'm not saying you're going to rejoice every time. I'm not saying you're going to celebrate, but if we could just get this one thing, folks. No matter what the reason we may be losing or being emptied, 
Just know that God is sovereign. So turn to Him. Remember that it's not happening without Him having a purpose. When we lose things of this world, the lasting solution is never, is never, is never to try to replace those things with more world. When you lose anything of this world, the solution is never, i got to get that back. i got to get more of that or something similar to it. I'm not saying those things are bad. I'm not saying those things, uh, I'm not saying more of those things would be bad. I'm not saying you don't need more. Heck, God may very well give you more, and if you need them, of course He will. What I am saying is when you lose the world, seek Jesus first before trying to fill the void. Because maybe the reason you were emptied is because you were full of the wrong stuff. Amen? And I'm not saying the stuff was bad. I'm just saying it wasn't as good as Jesus. Listen, if there's a wound, He can heal it. If there's a need, He can meet it by all means. But listen, more than anything, if you are empty, if you're empty, you need His feeling more than you need anything else. Amen? So when you lose something, take it as a reminder, I need more of something else that I can't lose. I'm not saying ignore reality. I'm not saying not to pray for what you need. I'm just saying in any loss, whether it's a misunderstanding, something went wrong, turn to Jesus when you lose anything. When you have less of something that you thought you couldn't have less of, you couldn't live without. Because Jesus sat down beside a well with a, with a girl one day, didn't he? And he said, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But I need it. I know you need it. And I'm not saying you shouldn't take it. But I know what's going on in your life. I know things at home aren't good. And I'm not saying you shouldn't go back. I'm not saying you shouldn't try somebody else. I'm not saying that you shouldn't continue to go to that well. I'm just saying if you keep going to that well, you're going to get thirsty again. You know it, don't you? But I say to you, by God, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. This world will take more than it gives. Any element or substance of this world is short-fused and double-doused. It will not last. Good things. God-given things even. I'm not trying to get you to forsake all matter. But even good things fade and break and fail. And thankfully, God can replenish and fix and resurrect anything. But it's in those moments when we look around and think, I can't keep up, I'm losing, I'm weak. Before you go back to the same well that gives us the same stuff that cannot last, come to God's well where all things can be made well. Don't think I've got to have that or I can't live. Think I've got to have Him. Moses began a new life by this well. It's not all spiritual. He found, a wife, he found a wife. He became a shepherd. He raised a family. But the most important part, he was in God's will because he was drinking from God's well. And you should know that God's well always leads to God's will. And sometimes what leads us to God's well is not always easy. Sometimes to get to God's well, we've got to be emptied of everything else. And we're hungry, and we're thirsty, and we're poor, and we're broken. But when you get to God's well, 
Just know that you are that much closer to God's will. Meanwhile, up in heaven, God saw what was going on below. Egypt's oppression against the Hebrews, the Hebrews' rejection of Moses, Moses' humility, self-denial, but still troubled spirit. And he was about to make a move. A move that the world has never forgotten that we'll look at next week. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you so much for your word. God, it's so rich and it's so powerful. God, thank you that you stirred up Moses' heart. We don't know how you did it. We can speculate. But you changed him. And he began to look at the people that he once ruled over and he realized that he was their equal. He looked at the people that he once was in charge of and realized he needed to serve, even willing to lay his life down for him. That cost him everything. That cost him his royalty. It cost him his power. But what it gained him was immeasurably more valuable. It gained him a taste from your well. Father, I pray that we might would realize that when we begin to lose things, when we begin to be emptied of this world, that might be you moving us in a direction that gets us closer to your well. And your well always leads us to your will. So, Father, if, if somebody here tonight, maybe, they're, maybe they need to take a step down. Maybe they need to leave their lofty position and go see what life is like for those that are suffering. And maybe in that exchange, they'll realize there's a better well to drink from. Maybe somebody has, been, has fallen off or has tumbled down the mountain and they've lost a lot of things recently and they've been trying to get that stuff back but maybe tonight has showed them they don't need to get that stuff back they need to get something even better whoever it is whatever we're facing God I pray that we would come to your well and I pray that the well would lead us to your will and in your will we're safer we're smarter and we're better in the best of hands We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.